Welcome to The Course Report, the real deal inside look at the professional golf venues around the world. If you love the game of golf, then this podcast is for you. We're giving you that inside scoop, a perspective that nobody else can, with smooth and true facts. I'm Curtis Tyrell, Certified Golf Course Superintendent, Master Greens Keeper. It's time to get on the green. It's time for The Course Reports. This week, we feature 40-year industry veteran, Armin Suni, golf course designer, general manager, superintendent, industry consultant. Armin has seen it all. And we also feature Ryan Potts, vice chairman of the BMW at Medina Country Club, board member, and former member of the University of Illinois golf team. This is going to be a good one. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the course reports. I have really been looking forward to this podcast because we are going to kind of come out of our normal box and we are going to go to the far reaches of the industry and talk with a couple of guys that do different things completely when it comes to the game of golf. First, I'd like to welcome Mr. Ryan Potts. Ryan is a former member of the University of Illinois golf team, a board member at Medina Country Club, a board member of the WGA and is currently the vice chairman of the most recent BMW Championship at Medina Country Club. Ryan, welcome to the Course Reports. How are you doing today? I'm great. Happy to do it. Hey, it's been uh, it's been great to um, catch up with you and um, have you on the show. You've had a busy couple weeks here. We I, I, we have we have um, awesome week at Medina, but uh, candidly, for my personal life and my uh, business life, I'm happy it's over. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I was thinking about how long you've been a member at Medina, both, you know, as a, as a youngster growing up, you know, all the way to today. How many times do you think you've played course three? Oh, 400. <laughs> 400. And uh, you still, you still love it. I do. I do. Um, it's funny, you know, after Justin Thomas shot 61, uh, I went out the, the Friday that it reopened after the week with TK Kelly, who's, you know, a PGA tour professional. I think he's on the Latin American tour. I think he's in Europe right now trying to qualify and TJ Blakemore, who's one of my best friends out there, my member, member partner. And I think he's won the club championship two out of the last three years. And we played the tips and none of us broke 75. So, um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah, it's, it's still, it's still got plenty of teeth is what you're saying. For us, it does. Right. Right. Well, you know, there was, um, there was a, an event you did, you were raising some money for charity where you played, I mean, a ridiculous amount of golf holes that day. Um, and you played all the golf courses in Medina. What, what was that again? It was a hundred hole hike. Um, this guy that's local to, um, Chicago started this charity, the hundred hole hike. I don't know if it's still going on where, you know, random golfers who were passionate about golf and passionate about charity uh, kind of took up a cause and tried walking and playing as many holes as they could in a day. And uh, I want to say it's about four years ago. I think we played 135 holes uh, <laughs> on July 3rd and, or July 2nd and raised a lot of money for the Evans Scholars Foundation, which is obviously important to me. So. Right, right. And you shot some incredibly good scores through those 130 holes. I did. I think I was maybe, I don't remember exactly. I was either a couple over or a couple under par. 
but uh, the, the, the best part, and I didn't realize this until about a whole, about a hundred and something, I played with one ball the whole time. Yeah, that's amazing. That, that was something else. And, uh, you know, what was really cool about that at the end, uh, you, had, you had a gallery kind of following you, you know, pushing you along, um, you know, family and friends and stuff. That was pretty neat. Yeah, I did. My, my wife was there, kids, family, you know. So uh, my parents, there was, a, there was actually, you know, with amongst the Medina crowd and I guess friends, um, you know, so many people gave, gave money and were kind of invested into it and they showed up and supported me as we kind of got through the twilight hours. Right, right. Yeah, that was cool, man. Well, our next guest is a uh, legendary uh, industry veteran uh, that has done really all kinds of things in the business from uh, working for uh, the one and only Richie Valentine at Marion Golf Club to get his start to hosting major events to being the general manager at uh, one of the top 20 golf courses in the world um, and now um, is an executive search partner with Copland Keebler and Wallace, Armin Suni. Armin, thanks for joining the Course Reports. How are you today? Great. Uh, it's great to be here with you, Curtis and Ryan. So uh, I'm looking forward to a, a great discussion. Who knows where <laughs> it's going to lead? <laughs> yeah, perfect. Armin, what have you been up to lately? I know you're always traveling. You got a lot of jobs going at once, but... Um... Really, Curtis, working on some searches, which I'm always working on. You know, I did my first search in 1987, so I've been at it quite a, quite a while now. And, uh, you know, I get to have a little bit of fun once in a while. I have an interest in my local country club, so I, I get to spend some time uh, with our successes there. Right. Right. Well, you know, the one thing that I didn't say about you, uh, of all the things you've done, is that you, uh, you've you actually been part of a design team. You are a design partner with uh, former tour player Richard Zokel, and you guys designed um, a golf course in British Columbia that uh, has some pretty uh, wide acclaim. Yeah, that was Whitman Zokel SUNY design, and it was kind of a lot, it was a lot of fun. You know, we had a lot of interesting conversations and dynamics uh, with the three of us. And ultimately, I think all of that led to a much better outcome. And, and it's something that we see in the golf business when there are differences of opinions in any regard. Uh, things usually end up better, in my opinion, because you have all those different opinions uh, coming to a point and people get to make decisions as to what they think's best. So it's, it's a lot of fun that way. And Curtis, it was like that on the golf course with us always too, at the end of the day in the wrap up sessions in golf course maintenance, we used to have those sessions and I had a lot of smart people working for me and I made a lot of great decisions when I paid attention to what they said. Yeah. You know, that, that's a, uh, that's a good point. You know, it's, you used to stress that to me that, hey, Curtis, you're going to learn more at the end of the day in the wrap-up sessions than you might all all day long out there in the field. So make sure you listen. I remember that clearly. Um, you know, uh, Armin, I don't know if you remember this, but I met you in a bunker at Cherry Hills Country Club in 1995 when I was on my internship out there. What's so it on the 18th got, hole? <laughs> you know, I thought it was like the third or fourth, might've been the 18th, but I just remember those bunkers needed to be edged. Like, you know, they needed like three feet cut off of them. They had crept in and it had been a while. 
and um i was i was just getting going and and uh i remember uh, meeting you there and, and so we've known each other for a long time and uh you know i've learned a lot from you but but when it comes to golf course design when you were working up there at uh sagebrush one of the things you said or i read in an article and i know we talked about it was was the importance of scale and you know you were working in you know a mountainside in british columbia and and you were building uh, features to match the scale of the horizon and, and the, the topography. And that that really sunk in. And as I've gone around the world and in other places, I, I always kind of compare it back to that. Um, how important is scale in terms of golf course design? And in particular, what did you guys do up there that, you know, made you really focus on that? Yeah, it was interesting. We uh, originally Zocal brought me in. And Dick, Dick Zoko and I have been friends for since uh, the late 80s. I met him through golf tournaments, you know, when we did the International Castle Pines and, and we became great friends. And so when that project came up, he gave me a call and he wanted to really make sure that nothing got carried away, that Rod Whitman, you know, very talented shaper and designer, that Rod didn't get carried away. Well, it ended up being the other way. <laughs> uh, I can remember, you know, the three of us standing on top of a hill by uh, looking down at this green for the seventh, uh, the site for the seventh green. Yeah. And I looked at it and I said, that whole thing should be the green. And <laughs> Zokel goes, how big? I go, it might be three quarters of an acre. <laughs> and, and Whitman, and Whit, Rod's saying, he goes, we could make that a big green. We could probably make it 9,000 feet. And Zokel's, no, 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 we need to go big. They, they pulled me back from the edge of the cliff and it ended up being a half an acre. But, <laughs> um, but when you look at it and the shot coming into it, it does not look like a half an acre. It looks like a normal size green. Yeah. And the views were so great and the distances and the scale was immense with the mountains that a normal size green, a normal large green would have looked minuscule. So... We right. were able to use big features. And I think our greens averaged 11,000 square feet. And three of the greens had two sprinklers in the middle of them because we just couldn't cover the, the big greens without that. So it, it was a lot of fun. And we built push-up greens, as you know, Curtis, as opposed to USGA greens. Right, right. So if, if, you're, uh, if you're a member at a club out there, one of our listeners, and you're wondering how big those greens are, the, the average green is bigger than your putting green at the, you know, the, your biggest putting green probably. So, I mean, those are big greens. Um, good stuff. Well, um, you know, with the course reports, you know, you guys are, you guys have been following it and I appreciate that. And, you know, each week we try to talk about the upcoming venue and, and profile the, the turf, the golf course, any major projects, things that might be relevant or interesting to the viewer that, that is going to watch them each week. Uh, you know, but the season's over. There's some golf on TV still, and there's still some tournaments to talk about. But I wanted to kind of look backwards with you guys and talk about the year uh, in general. And I thought maybe we could talk about the majors, you know, starting with the PGA Championship at Bethpage. I mean, Ryan, uh, that's a big golf course like Medina. I mean, what did you think of that event? Uh, Brooks Kepka winning and, and just the time of year and the golf course in general. Well, yeah, it was a little interesting having it be in March. Or was it? March or April? It, no, it was May. No, it was May. May. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. The Players Championship was in uh, March. Masters April. Right. PGA right. May. I'm trying to get acclimated with a new schedule. 
um, you know, it's a brutish golf course, you know, and when the, you know, the PGA of America is allowed to set it up and the rough grows to eight, 10 inches or whatever the heck it was. Um, I think it made for, you know, a worthy champion. Uh, I watched all four days, although candidly, I think it's hard to watch PGA championships, but, um, you know, best player. Won. Why is that? Why is it hard to watch PGA championships? You know, I, th- I feel like they're of when it's now follows the masters, right. As the next major. And there is a commercial every yeah. 21 minutes or whatever it is. The product, the product gets dumbed down. Um, yeah. And you get spoiled, you know, watching the masters. And that, I think that goes to every single golf event, except now that I can think, you know, golf channel does kind of that playing through thing where you get to watch some golf, but it's just, it's a hard follow, you yeah. know, in my opinion, uh, with the PGA championship kind of following that, that production of the masters, which I think most everyone would agree is, you know, far and away the you know best produced golf there is. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that Armin? It's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I did a PGA championship in uh, 1985. That was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, uh, and things have really changed. Uh, to me, television broadcast, you know, over the years, I got to be friends, very good friends with Frank Cherkinian uh, and also some of the folks at, uh, at ABC as well. Never worked with NBC. And so I, I got to understand a little bit about what they tried to accomplish with the broadcasts. And so watching these broadcasts, I'm always looking at different things. I'm looking at how they portray it, how they try to set up the drama of it. And Ryan's right on the money when you have to break for commercials all the time, even the playthroughs, it, it, it pulls away from the kind of drama that they could establish at the Masters. You know, Cherkinian was a genius at that. And, and Lance Barrows does a great job of it now in, in creating a, the story, a storyline, that drama. And I think that's what we miss at regular tour events. And following up the Masters, Ryan, you're dead right. It's almost impossible to, to, for us to watch it and not reflect back on the coverage of the Masters. Well, and let's not forget the PGA Championship. I mean, they, they missed what might have been the biggest shot of the tournament. It didn't even get aired. I mean, I don't know if it was 17. I think it was 17 when Brooks kept hit in the bunker. And they, they, yeah. they missed the shot. <laughs> they were at commercial or something. Yeah, it was they? crazy. I mean, it was it was an enormous shot. And they came back and Brooks Kepka was standing in the middle of the fairway. You're like, how did he get there? What happened? Right, right. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, back to the Masters for a second. I mean, they didn't need any drama or any story this year, obviously. I mean, um, everybody that 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 even remotely likes golf was tuning in for that. Um, you know, and that was, that was fantastic for the game, I think. Um, you know, the golf course is just, you know – uh, you know, it is just that special. I mean, you never get tired of watching it. And I think to your point, Ryan, they do such a great job that, um, you know, it's uh, it's just one of those special times a year. But, you know, do the other majors, you know, uh, maybe it is because of the way that the, the broadcast is set up. But, you know, what what makes is it the golf course itself? Is it is it the, the way it's been um, built in terms of broadcasting? But why is it that nobody ever gets tired of Augusta? I think it's, in my opinion, I think a lot of it's the seasonality, you know, kind of the ritual of it. 
you know, for, right. for us Northerners, you know, we're coming out of a, you know, being in Chicago, a long, dark, cold winter. And the Masters, at least for me, kind of seems to be kind of the kickoff of the real yeah. golf season. Uh, you, yeah. you know, you see the azaleas bloom and it's kind of for, it's kind of a, a hope of things and a, you know, a snapshot of things to come for us. Uh, right. You know, knowing the golf course so well. You know, there's especially now they show the front nine too. I mean, I, I can name the intricacies of every hole on that property, and most you know avid golfers can, and even kind of part-time golfers can kind of walk through the whole back nine with you. And so there's a there's a ritual to it and a um, familiarity that you know I think makes it very attractive to people. Yeah, no doubt about it. And Armin, you know, you were you were. Um a superintendent during that era when a lot of the groundbreaking turf stuff started happening with the bent grasses and Augusta really began to kind of establish itself. Um, and, you know, always, I guess was considered that way, but you know, it was probably through the eighties where it was just running away from everybody else in terms of turf technology and conditioning presentation performance. You know, what was that era like? And, and, and I know a lot of your, your buddies and colleagues were, were part of it. Um, in terms of Augusta kind of setting the bar for the industry. Yeah, I always thought we were setting the bar, Curtis. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Joe Dewich from Penn State, the great professor who developed most of these new bent grasses for greens, or at least opened that up, that, that whole area up. Joe was a consultant for, Dr. Dewich was a consultant for Augusta. And we used to talk all the time. And so I knew what Billy Fuller was doing. Billy knew what we were doing. And it, it was an era when the equipment started allowing us to do special things. You know, up until that point, really, we were just mowing and maybe brushing. And all of a sudden, in the mid-80s, we had groomers. We had uh, So we could be light grooming all the time. We, were, we had light top dressing that was going on. And the whole world for bent grass and the quality of putting greens changed. And the players began to not only expect it, but demand that the greens were good and true. And so it, it did change. Uh, it really did. And I actually, I can remember being at Augusta, uh, having one of those great experiences. I was sitting under the oak tree talking with, I think, Reese, maybe. And Joe Dewich drives, Dr. Dewich drives by and, and he says, what are you doing? I said, nothing. He said, well, I'm going to go stimp greens. You want to go with me? So I'd been, at, I'd been on property for about an hour and I'm out stimping greens. Uh, so... <laughs> Awesome. So that was fun. Then, you know, I got the Royal tour of CBS and I got to hang out at the cottages with Charlie Coe. So, you know, those kinds of experiences that we're able to have, uh, it gives us a little bit of insight, you know, and seeing behind the scenes at these events. Uh, that's always fascinated me, you know, growing up doing events uh, to see all that. But I think Ryan, to me, what surprised me about my first time at Augusta was the topography I agree. Shocking. It's marvelous. That 10th hole was yeah. the greatest sledding hole in America, I think. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it, man. That Nobody can really appreciate it until you see it. But, uh, you know, what's amazing about that topography uh, is that when they built that place, you know, they probably couldn't imagine the surfaces that are being presented today. And that, you know, that golf course has just... Uh, and that topography has just bloomed and manifested with these new surfaces. I mean, other than the fact that it's not always the firmest place fairway wise and such, and that has a lot to do with the, 
the Bermuda overseeded and the ryegrass. But I mean, you know, it's the, the epitome of, of the best surfaces in the world, especially for one week of the year. And, you know, those surfaces apply to that incredible topography. Yeah, Curtis, I'm I'm just hoping that uh, they can get some sun on the 12th green. That's all I'm hoping for with that land acquisition from uh, Augusta Country Club, that they can get a little more sun on number 12. Because I'm always looking at 12 green because I know that's their, their challenge. Right. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know the topo on those greens. I mean, in the, when those greens were built, nobody ever thought that the greens were going to be as smooth and as true and as fast as they are today. But it still works. Well, it works for that week. I mean, Curtis, you know just as well as I do, you know, with the course one renovation at Medina, um, you know, Doak built some greens that aren't nearly as severe as, let's just say, five or 17, you know, at Augusta National or two. And members, you know, complain about those greens, you know. So the the public wants Augusta National until they get a little bit of it. And then they realize that, like... (laughs) wow, these greens move a lot and they're fast and I might not be able to two putt from everywhere. So, you know, the, the retail golfer is a, um, is a quandary to try to figure out, you know, and then, you know, going from Augusta to, you know, back to uh, Beth page, those are some flat greens there. I mean, that course that, that really, you know, I was there and it was in great shape and, and it was a beautiful uh, piece of land too, with a lot of really nice movement. Um, you know, but it was, it really just felt like kind of a bomber's golf course. Um, really, as long as you stayed in, in the lanes and got to the greens, you could, you could shoot well. And it was really just about length and weather that I think, you know, dictated the scores. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're at a point where, sorry, Medina is a perfect example of it. Um, if you're not challenging these pros with difficult up and downs, the, the rest of it doesn't matter. You know, the rough at Medina could have been 15 inches long at the BMW. Uh, yeah. But if they're, at, you know, if they're greenside and they don't have to worry about chipping the ball off the green or chipping it to 15 feet or 30 feet, you know, I, I don't think it matters. And Beth Page kind of has that same type of feel as Medina, um, where, you know, Augusta National, there's places where you just can't hit it, period. Mm-hmm. And if you hit it there, there's no way you're going to hit it close. And you're going to have a 20 to 30 footer if you even keep it on the green. And so there's not a lot of fear, you know, for these players. You know, I I look at this game and, you know, I I did my first tournament golf in 1977, an amateur at Aronimant Golf Club and and open at Marion in 1981. So, you know, that was when wood, wood drivers were still it. And to see what's happened to the game, and what it's become, you're, you're right on. It all comes to uh, how challenging the surrounds of the greens are and the greens themselves are. Every, everything else, they just don't care. They just bomb away. And unless there's death and devastation, or, you know, guys keep – or guys – the mental side of the game does, still becomes apparent. We saw that at Augusta with some people hitting some shots we couldn't believe and uh, putting them in the water. Right. Uh, we were just all in shock. We just didn't believe that could happen. But it, it, this still is a mental game. And to see these players challenged and we like to see kind of these players challenged and some succeed. 
some some do it and others don't. And and that creates the interest on television. Yeah. It really does. Sure. Yeah. But here's the dichotomy, right? I mean, you have, you know, Augusta National is set up to host their tournament each year. And whether they have members or not is totally insignificant. Uh, the members play, you know, four to eight times a year anyways. So they really don't have any say because it's a dictatorship, which is, you know, arguably the best way to run a country club. But, you know, the rest of the clubs, like, again, I'll speak from personal experience, Medina, you know, do I want to play a golf course every day that is designed and set up to, you know, challenge the top 70 or 30 or 144 players once every seven years? And for me personally, that answer is no. But, you know, I think, you know, Armin, like you said, with the advances of technology, you know, shame on the USGA, they've put all these courses in a really and clubs and people, you know, in a really, really difficult position if they want to stay relevant for the modern game. And by relevant, I mean relevant to par. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm left shaking my head after the BMW a little bit. Right, right. Well, let's, I definitely want to get back to that. But, you know, you mentioned the USGA and that's a perfect segue to Pebble Beach. So we went from Beth Page to Pebble Beach. You know, how much did that that concept of trouble around the greens apply there in terms of how the USGA set it up this year? Yeah, it was it was interesting. I, I really wanted to see what the the era of Mike Davis stepping back from setup was going to look like. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of us were were watching that and just trying to see read between the lines of what was really going on. I agree. Do you think they played it? safe this year um you know to avoid that that you know what seemed to be you know a you know a problem every year they were having they were stepping on their toe every single year making a mistake somewhere and it just felt like this year they played it really straight down the line not a lot of not a lot of chance for error because they were they really didn't want to make one yeah but i mean i I thought it was a great tournament it was um i mean gary woodland Earned every single bit of that trophy. Yes, I mean, the way his Saturday round and the putts he made and the the grind that he exhibited. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, I'm a I'm a Brooks Kepka fan, so I was rooting for Brooks to kind of do what he does and chase him down. And I mean, candidly, now I'm a Gary Woodland fan. I mean, that guy showed just an amazing amount of heart. And so, you know, when you look at the tournament in hindsight. You know, I think it accomplished all the goals. I mean, there was no storylines about Phil Mickelson whacking the ball off the green or unplayable <laughs> greens. I mean, I thought the course showed well. Uh, what was it, 10 under, 12 under, 13 under, one? I mean, it's it's about right. You know, people want to – I guess there's some there's some kind of misogynist and sadist that like seeing players, you know, melt down on the course. I don't necessarily love it. But um, I, I, thought it was a, I thought it was a good tournament. How about the shot that Gary hit on Sunday? I think it was 17 where he had to chip the, the ball on the green. Oh, there's a 0% chance I w- would have either A, not taken a massive divot out of the green or hit the ball into the ocean. <laughs> I mean, that was amazing to me. Yeah, well, I loved it. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a former superintendent, I, I always loved it when I, when somebody wanted to chip off the green. Because that's part of the game. We can fix it. 
I, you know, I don't want every every group doing it, but to to see that shot, it was just just remarkable, and it, it was as good as it gets. Uh, I, I'd never seen anything like it. And thank God they fixed that hole. Yeah. I mean, that hole looks a whole lot better now, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that, you know, it just really kind of depends, uh, you know, on the individual and what, what type of golf you like to, to play and watch. And, you know, to me, the British Open, when when it's playing firm or the Open Championship, I should say. <laughs> I was going to correct you. <laughs> yeah, when, when it's, when, I appreciate that. When it's playing firm and the ball's running, you can hit, you know, by all intents and purposes, a, a perfect drive. And it just rolls and finds some weird bunker somewhere, you know, like that that interests me you know and um now royal port rush didn't play like that all the way through it wasn't quite that firm even though you know the weather just didn't support it but you know when i think of pebble beach and i think about the u.s open going there it's like all right you know that that's you know the west coast version of of a lynx golf course if you will and dry it down and let that ball bounce in places that it you know technically shouldn't and it didn't do it this year it's still held up. It's still a great championship. Like you said, nothing wrong with it. But I would have loved to seen it, you know, a little more baked out. And I felt like they didn't do that because they were afraid of criticism. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the weather was like leading up to it, up to, it to be totally honest. Um, but, uh, I mean, uh, I've played Pebble. Those greens are so amazingly small when you actually stand on top of them. Um, so, I mean – if those greens get hard and fast and firm, I don't even know how playable that golf course is. You know, Cur- Curtis, you, br- you bring up something a- along those lines. And I, I-, I want to throw in Pinehurst number two in- into this conversation. I thought the renovation that, uh, you know, Bill and Ben did was, was just great. Uh, but I-, I really did not agree with centerline irrigation. <laughs> I, I, I felt that uh, centerline irrigation did not reward every – the A position on every hole with every pin position is not the center. Right. So having the edges firmer than the center, uh, yeah, encouraged people to, to stay more to the center and not to try to hit it to the edges where they had the right angles coming in. I, I thought it was limiting. I love drying the golf course down. I think that's great. I think it should have been a uniform dry down on on the fairways, so that you could play to the advantages. And so that's the probably something you know with the playability and the design of a golf course. Those two things have to match up for it to be truly brilliant. Yeah. I mean, did, did it matter though? I mean, didn't Keimer win that tournament by like 150 shots? He did. Yeah. overall the concept that that you should encourage people to 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 play strategy or have the ability to play strategy without a soft middle and firm edges no i agree i'm just kidding i mean that's that's very well put i didn't even think about that you know you know it's when you you talked about medina we we talked about you know the, the way these guys are playing today and then you know in general when it comes to say something like the bmw you know the idea is that everybody wants everybody wants to see scoring. Everybody wants to see, you know, guys making birdies and, and that's that's what's gonna attract people to watch. I don't know about that. I mean, I, I I think a lot of people like to see these guys struggle. I mean, I, I don't know why it's more exciting to see them hit it down, you know, in, in a flip wedge to a couple feet and make, 
make a bunch of birdies and shoot the course record, why that's more exciting than seeing them uh, bounce in a bunch of crazy places and and uh, shoot a few over par and struggle like the rest of us. I you know I think they got to I think they got to turn around. I think they they maybe have gone too far down one direction. And they need to back it up a little bit. You know I think it de- depends. I mean. I- and I think it's probably the diversity of scores that makes it more interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if it was Tom Doak or someone, I read an article about why Augusta national is so intriguing from a, you know, viewership or a fan perspective. And it goes down to kind of the pacing of the golf course and where the leaders are on each and the, and the, and the chasers are on each given hole. So you've got like nine, 10, 11, you can even argue 12, which are, you know, kind of hang on holes and you got 13, 14, 15 at Augusta that are, you know, birdie Eagle holes and then 16, 17, 18, which, you know, is, is a mix of kind of par birdie holes. And you've always had the chasers that are ahead of the winners or of the leaders. And so you're seeing these score fluctuations kind of ahead mm-hmm. of you mm-hmm. that makes so much, build so much drama and create so much pressure on the people that are following. Cause they feel like they need to catch up that makes that tournament so much better where, you know, you go play an average PGA tour event and, you know, 90% of the holes, any given person can birdie, you know? So there's a brilliance in that routing for tournament golf that I feel like is lacking throughout the rest of the golf courses that, you know, again, you can't capture that drama, you know, watching, you know, for instance, the BMW or the, St. Jude or whatever it is that you get from the masters and it always feels like it's lacking. Yeah. And maybe that's why Curtis, you like seeing people shoot high scores because on any given hole, someone could fall off a leaderboard. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, are, are where, what other courses do that? I mean, do we know of any that we could maybe say fall in the same, um, same classification? I mean, obviously Gusta being its own thing, but what sawgrass? I mean, are there any others that, we could say do this like i guess sawgrass maybe a little bit when you get to 16 17 i mean and 18 i can't believe more people don't hit in the water on 18 but you know 16 you can make an eagle um 17 you can make a two or a 10 yeah you know in 18 i guess the ball flies so straight now it, they just hit it at the tree and it stays there but i remember when i was a kid you know 18 people hit in the water all the time yeah because the hole used to be a long hole, and now it's not. Right. Curtis, you know, you're talking about, you know, you like to see, you know, those challenges. One of the things I miss is I miss Seve. I, I miss seeing the great recovery shots being all over the world right. and getting up and down, kind of like what Tiger used to do. Um, I, I miss that. I, I think that's a part of golf that every – Average golfer or worse like me sees those kinds of shots and think, you know, that's, that's where, that's where I'd be. That's where I'd be hitting it from. No doubt about it. No doubt. I mean, think about uh, Medina and, you know, one of the most famous clips from Medina is the Sergio shot. Yeah. You know? So yeah, you're, you know, I agree with you, Armin. That's, that's kind of what I'm saying, you know, it's like that to me is, is interesting. You know, this idea that, that it's going to be so damn hard that, uh, these guys are going to have a tough time. I, I'm just saying, I think that brings as many people to the television um, as does a birdie fest. 
for what it's worth. But, you know, um, Royal Port Rush this year was really great. You guys know I had a really uh, special, unique opportunity to go out there a few weeks before and film a video about the prep for the golf course. And let me tell you, um, what an amazing place. What a really fantastic uh, venue for for an open championship ryan you've played it right i have twice that golf course is awesome yeah in my top five it, in in yeah i mean um you know what did you think of the the new holes that they put in seven eight seven and eight i mean i know which ones they were they were so well done i couldn't i mean if you didn't know that they were new holes you would never know they were new holes you know what was dramatic was the you know the dunes there are like they're huge. I mean, you know, they're not like little bumps, man. I mean, these are like mountain size. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you're you crawling through valleys like on that seventh hole. I mean, and it's um you know, they're they're 60, 70 feet high. And so, so that's what drove me crazy as a I mean, uh, as a golf architecture guy and you see this new breed of golf architecture people who value the merit of a golf course, whether or not you can play a course with one ball and all that BS. Yeah. You could lose a hundred golf balls on that golf course. <laughs> I mean, those dunes are so big. That grass is so long. Yeah. It is so penal. Um, I mean, especially once the wind blows, yeah. it's, it's, it's an amazingly fair golf course, but it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It, it uh it is something else and armin you you would have loved it um so i'm talking with grand beat the the course manager there and so we're talking about fertility and i'm like you know what you know what is it on this fescue what's the secret what's the secret sauce and he goes ah oh, you know it's pretty old school pretty simple man just a little molasses a little uh sea kelp maybe some iron uh and i figured you might like hearing that you know because it uh sounds familiar i'm sure yeah. Curtis, what, what kind of speed did they have on those greens? You know, um, they were shooting to have them somewhere around 10, you know, nine and a half, 10, when they got to, you know, the first couple days of tournament week and everything was about the wind there for them. You know, they just knew if it was dry and windy that they couldn't be faster than that. Um, they would just lose all of their potential hole locations if they were. And, um, just, you know, the way the greens just fall off and as firm as they are, um, you know, that's what they were, that's what they were shooting for. And, um, I think, you know, it was somewhere in that range. Um, you know, they certainly seem to have them, you know, well controlled. But can we, agree, can we all agree that it's harder to make putts on slow greens than it is fast greens though? I can agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no doubt. It's, it's probably it's probably the right way to go. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's it's interesting you bring that up because, uh, you know, we we look at the madness of how fast can the greens be? Faster, faster, faster. And I think different players would play better with with slower greens than play with fast greens. It'd be interesting to to see what the difference was over the course of a season if we had greens that were a foot slower. Right. You know, I mean, I, I just think back to my, my career and, and uh, you know, the, the era that I was growing grass in there at Medina and beforehand, it, it was a hundred percent about having fast greens. Like, you know, at the level we were at, nobody would tolerate anything, you know, 
slower than 11 you know and, and they you know they got to they got to understand what an 11 was they didn't they didn't know how you get an 11 but if they were slower than that you were going to hear about it and um maybe to your point ryan it's because they make more putts at 11. oh i think that's for sure <laughs> yeah it's easier tap to tap than it is to hit <laughs> yeah and i think i think something really interesting is that the stint meter was developed to create so that you could measure and keep the greens uniform from green to green, which I never agreed with, by the way. <laughs> I, I didn't think your your highest windiest green should be the same speed as your lowest wet uh, mo- green that holds moisture. I just didn't believe that. I, I thought that was part of the game that you're in nature. But I think we went from that to I am absolutely convinced and 100% believe that when we see some of these events that they run greens at different speeds and the players either know it or adapt to it, but you can't have all the greens the same speed and have the greens that fast. It just can't. You wouldn't have pin positions on some of these greens. Well, that, that was a great championship. And, um, you know, it was weird that that was the last major of the year. I mean, this new schedule, I mean, what do you guys think about it? I mean, how did it sit with you this year? It was fine for me. I mean, I know Rusty, uh, Rory and Jordan, or uh, Rory and uh, Justin Rose didn't like it, but um, I, I, I feel like right now there's a little bit of a void, though, you know. But I'm also I follow the European tour a little bit, so it's kind of nice that they're kind of their big season is starting to kick up right now. So, you know, it, it was kind of weird. Uh, you know, I. I you know, we had uh, we had a major in May, and uh, and I, maybe it's just right. because I've so long it's been the way it is that that I didn't, you know, that it surprised me a little bit. But uh, I don't know. I, I got into August and I was wondering what what happened. Uh, you know, there was nothing really to look forward to, and and the FedEx at this point is is not something that I'm especially excited about. Um, so to me, it, it was just strange. I, I missed having a later major. Uh, I understand television, why they're doing it and all that. But but to me, it, it was just the major season was over and we still had a lot of golf season left. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole U.S. golf season is 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 over now, really. I mean, no one's going to watch the, you know, the tournament in Napa or the one in Las Vegas or, you know, St. Simons, Georgia. God willing, you know, it's just yeah. over. <laughs> I know. I, and I agree with you. I, I think it's weird. I mean, I'm, I'm not used to it, but you know, it's been that way for a while, but you know, it was kind of like, I was hoping um, for the guys at Beth page that they got good weather, but in, in, in uh, there was a part of me that was like, man, I hope this New York may thing turns into a real struggle for you know along the lines of what i was saying earlier so that it was really really tough in a unique way and i always thought that the august pga just being a you know a death slog through heat and humidity added something to it and um you know we you know we've lost that but you know armin your point about the 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 fedex cup you know just still trying to find its footing um i think is a good one you know ryan you've seen all kinds of major championships at your club. Um, what was it like having a FedEx cup playoff as compared to some of the other things that you've been a part of? You know, uh, candidly from a um, fan perspective, 
it was the best tournament we've had. Come uh, on, man. Yeah. Oh, I mean, hold on a second here. It was. You're it talking was. to me. We did the Ryder Cup. Come on. The dude. Ryder Cup had four groups out on the course at any given point. You couldn't see anything. Oh, man. All right. I mean, I mean it, from, <laughs> a, from a fan perspective, I there were 70 of the best players out on the golf course. Yeah. They were all out at once. They were all playing really hard because they wanted to get in the top 30 and all the exemptions that came along with it. Uh, it just felt intimate. You know, it was, it was nice. Um, it was kind of in a nice time of the year, you know, it was kind of the end of the summer. Uh, you know, despite the rain that we got, the weather was pretty good. Everyone was happy. I I don't know. I I really enjoyed it. Those are great points. I mean, Armin, you know, with, with that being under, you know, being true, uh, why isn't the FedEx Cup, um, you know, as popular as it could be? I I, th- I thought one of the, one of the things I, I thought got interesting was this uh, going into into the champion the final with uh, di- differentiated scores coming in with you know minus ten or whatever, and but leading up to that, I thought that the story, the great stories, were the cut lines and who was who was going to survive the cuts. Exactly, and make it through. Yeah. That that to me what became the story as much as who was winning and how they were winning. Uh, it's a great human interest to see that that struggle, you know, man against himself and, and his competition and nature all in one spot and one place. So so that's the part I enjoyed about it. Um, I might be a little different than a lot of folks, but to me that was what I was paying attention to. No, I think you're 100 percent right on that, and I think that's something the PGA Tour is missing. Uh, you know, I, I don't care if Rory McIlroy makes another 15 million bucks. You know, he already made 15 this year, probably more. So that hook to get me to watch golf means nothing. I, I don't care at all. Zero percent. But, you know, <laughs> Lucas Glover, who ironically enough, what I played the Pro-Am on Wednesday with, you know, he had to par the last hole to finish in the top 30. And having friends that you know, are on that struggle now and are trying to compete. I know how important that is, especially when I think he's 41 or 42 or 40. You know, that's a huge deal. And so I was watching that more than whether, you know, Justin Thomas won and then got to finish at minus 10 or minus 8 or whatever it was the next week. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's cool, man. I, I, you know, I – I like that they move it around too. I think that if they could – if they could keep – searching out some really great venues and and maybe make make it a little bit more challenging um you know uh, conditions wise or or find that right venue with those tough up and downs like you were saying to really make that drama even more intense i think it's just going to continue to to gain some popularity yeah it will but i mean the the finals at east lake every year and i i mean I, personally i've seen enough of east lake yeah i think they should move it around too I mean, why not? Go to Peachtree. Yeah, I mean, I mean, are, Armin, are there enough? Um, are are there enough southern venues, you know, across the the southern band of the United States that of interest that that could hold something like that? Well, that's probably Curtis. The best thing that happened with the date change for the PGA Championship mm-hmm. is that it opens up a whole slew of golf. That, that we really never had the opportunity to see. Now, 
court, you know, the PGA of America took some forays in, into the deep south for in August for no good reason other than monetary. But I think at this point now, I, I'm very encouraged. And as much as it's strange to me that the PGA is where it is, I'm, I'm pleased that hopefully they'll choose some great new venues that we haven't had the opportunity to see before. And, and I think there are some really good ones that they could be looking at. Um, and some of those newer golf courses too, Ryan, that, that, that we know and love uh, that are here, built here in the last 15, 20 years that would really be something special to see some events on those. I agree. Have you seen Southern Hills yet, Armin? Just, just pictures. I've not been there yet. Yeah, I, me too. I'd like to see that. It looks really good. Well, they're going to be back there soon, right? For the, uh, aren't they going there for the PGA Championship? Isn't that on the list? I think you may be right, but I don't know. And I'm not sure yeah. what I'm allowed to say. Yeah. Well, the um, <laughs> the other thing is the PGA uh, of America is building the big venue in, in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Frisco. Frisco Golf Club, I think it's called. So you know we're going to have something down there. That won't be FedEx Cup, but uh, maybe uh, PGA Championship or definitely PGA Championship. In fact, I think they've already announced it. No, I think we should expect that to be a um, more permanent location down the road. I think they're looking at the Augusta model and seeing that that works financially. So hopefully it's a good golf course. So, Curtis, one of the things that I think that is coming at us is when does golf get privatized, golf broadcasting get privatized by the tour? What do you mean? I mean, you mean like uh, uh, private or you mean like streaming and, you know, on demand? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it seems like it's headed that way to me, that there's a lot of revenue out there that they, they're having to share at this point that they may not have to share. Well, I think it's definitely heading that way. I mean, you've got golf TV, you got golf pass and they're, they're, you know, contracted with various events and such, and they're doing all their own individual content. Now I'm, you know, that's what the course reports is, um, we're trying to be, you know, a part of something like that. So, yeah, I, th- I, th- I do think that that it's headed that way. And that, you know, that brings up, you know, this discussion about what type of interesting venues are out there. You know, I think that, you know, from a cin- cinematography standpoint or just uh, a subject content uh, standpoint, man, it's kind of boring. They show the same old stuff all the time. It's always somebody putting. I mean, you know, I mean. What else do they show? <laughs> like, what? What can't we do something different? Yeah, it's- yeah. I, I mean, it's. It, I, I, I can't. I guess I'll be a little, little empathetic. Uh, it seems like it's a hard thing to show. You know, it goes back to our discussion what forty minutes ago about Augusta National, right? In my opinion, there's no more dramatic hole than the tenth hole. You know, that tenth tee where the green goes, I mean, the fairway just falls out to infinity, but you, you don't see that on television, you know? So you could show also, you know, guys hitting six irons and seven irons and wedges. And you know, I don't think it, TV captures that, you know? So I think they kind of get stuck with guys watching, you know, hitting putts because you can conceptualize maybe the break or see what they're dealing with a little bit better. Uh, you know, I, I think golf just might be difficult to show on television. You know, maybe that's why they show drives with the pro tracer. You know, it's got, it's Brooks Kepka hitting it 390 yards with a purple line behind his ball right down the middle of the fairway that, 
you know, consumers can actually grasp and, you know, conceptualize. Yeah. You know, and back to Armin, what you were just saying, Armin, I mean, think about the masters on their app. They've got the the featured groups, right? And so maybe, maybe it's a combination of that new technology, Ryan, with, with tracers and such, but then you've got more featured group type of stuff where you're, you're hearing more conversations between the guys, um, caddy talk, I, you know, something, you know, fly some drones in their face. I don't know. I mean, but it just, you know, I just, I have a strong desire to see something other than the guys putting all the time, which I feel like is the, the centric part of every broadcast and not with not much else. You know, you know what I'd like to see Curtis, I'd, I'd like to see player caddies not be able to help players with their putts. <laughs> I'd like to see what happened when the players ha- had to read their own putts. It, it, it would just be so interesting to and me. And no books, right? No books, no pin sheets. It, and they had to go play golf. Yeah. I'd love that too. It's like playing Chicago golf. Your range finder gets thrown in your car along with your phone. You know, uh, so you got the match, right? So they had the match last uh, last year, Tiger and Phil. I mean, I think if 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 more guys in private broadcasting, like you said, Armin, were to get together and let's just say you had fifteen or twenty of them that decided to do something where they had their own kind of game going on, and maybe these kind of things were involved, and there were you know there were side bets and the bunkers didn't get raked. I mean, think of all the things you could do that'd be a heck of a lot more interesting than what we watch. Just not not talking about the majors, not talking about the FedEx, but you know, to liven up the year a little bit. Where's Where's George Coleman when we need him? <laughs> Who's George Coleman? George Coleman was the uh, he was the guy behind the match at Cyprus. Gotcha, uh, Mr. Coleman, and he was the president of Seminole and uh, the, the Coleman Cup down there. Coleman Cup, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and just a great guy. Curtis, I feel like you're leading me. I mean, you you want me to share my intellectual property. And I've been talking about this for like five years. I want to get the top 20 to 50 players, whatever it is. I want to put them on Pine Valley. I want to put them on Cypress Point. I want to put them on Seminole. And I want to give them a 1980s golf ball. And they can even use their, their irons. I don't care. And maybe a wood and a persimmon driver. And I want them to go out and play that golf course. Yeah, that'd be- That's real TV. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's, that was the purpose of trying to bring it up. You know, I mean, it's just like, man, there's gotta be something better. Everybody's kind of got ideas and it's just the same old stuff, you know? And that's like, you find yourself at this point in the year and it's kind of like, ah, another year done, same kind of same old thing, you know? Um, I'm hoping things can, uh, can change going forward. Well, you know, golf course design, like you said, Armin, there's been a lot of good stuff done over the last 15 years. Um, you know, the industry's really changed from, when I was coming up in terms of the number of builds and such. Um, but, um, you know, what's happened out there. Interesting that, that you know about, um, in terms of either restoration, renovation or new builds. Well, to me, there's something going on that it's kind of like Tuscan architecture has been out, but nobody realized it for a while. And I think with golf course architecture, the minimalist look, I don't mean the playability. The look, I think it's almost overdone at this point. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. To me, it's always been great earth forms are great earth forms. Doesn't matter what the vegetation around them is like. If you have to put 
wild vegetation around an earth form for it to look good. It wasn't a good earth form. And so you could take great architecture and you can have long stuff on it. You could have fairway cut on it and it look and it looks right and it plays right. So I I think we're going to see that coming back to center a little bit. Uh, And I think it's going to be better for golf, quite frankly, as much as I love that, that's the look I love. I don't necessarily think it's great for golf overall. So I I couldn't agree more. And Curtis, we've had this conversation offline. Mm -hmm. I've, I love Kuren Crenshaw. Don't get me wrong. I think they do a great job. Every time I play one of their courses, I enjoy it very much. But I've been to Bandon. I've been to Sand Valley. I've been to Cabot. I've been to Streamsong. Outside of maybe Streamsong, just because of the nature of the quarry and stuff, all of those golf courses could be the same golf course to me. Mm. Now, some's got a cl- some of them have a cliff. Some of them have a bluff. Some of them have, you know, but that they could be one golf course. And, you know, and it's, I guess it speaks to kind of their, the quality of the work they do because you know what you're getting. You're going to have a you're going to have good, good 18 holes of golf, but I keep traveling like these places and I'm kind of done doing it. Like I want to go see something different at this point. It, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. If, you know, if, if this age of the minimalist look is over, or is, is coming to a close, you know, where do we go now? Because the, the, um, hobbyist, uh, enthu- uh, golf course architecture fan world of, of blogs and magazines and all that, man, I mean, you know, they've been on this train for a while. I mean, there's, there's only, you know, a handful of guys that are worthy in their opinion. And I wonder <laughs> if, you know, how much of that, how much of that media is, is really fake news, you know, and how much of it is real, you know, um, it's, in, it's interesting. And then you got the whole ranking element of it, you know, and what does that mean and how do you analyze that? And, you know, um, where's this all going to go in the, uh, the economy today and the way the golf, the game of golf is being, um, or is not growing or is, you know, marginally growing. I mean, what do you guys think? Yeah, it's, it's, there's something, Curtis, that I always get a kick out of. And that is that when I see these some of these great new golf courses and, and some of the great old golf courses, that the 18th hole is one of the most challenging holes on the golf course. I, I've always felt that the 18th hole should probably be in the middle of the handicap, maybe a little bit on the easy side, so that when you leave the golf course, you had one of your better holes on the last hole, you're more apt to come back and play again. And you leave feeling better. And it it just amazes me that almost all the design has been very contrary to to that thought. And, you know, we we need people to play more golf. I like it when I, when I have a couple good shots and I finish up with a good hole, I feel better about myself and about the game. I'm more likely to come back and play again. So uh, more frequently. So to me, I think there's a lot of with the golf course architecture and these renovations that we're seeing that people have to start considering uh, the what the average handicap of a golfer is and designing these golf courses for, for more average people. You can always put a back tee with a bad angle, lower, not higher. You know, there, there's ways to keep it challenging for, for the, the, the better golfers. But I think we need to be looking out for the, the people that play the most golf in this country. It's funny you say that, Armin. Curtis, remember being in the meeting with Tom Doak when we were talking about course one 
yeah. and the renovation and whether we flip the nines and how do we do it. And the 10th hole on course one has water to the right. And Doak's opinion was kind of like, I don't really care which way it, you know, which way you route it. But I feel like it's a really bad start if you walk out and pump the ball in the water on the first hole. <laughs> and so now the 10th hole is the 10th hole instead of the first yeah. hole. And I mean, it's, yeah. well, it's well put, you know. Well, he said the same thing about nine when they were, we were talking about changing them around. Nine's a super long, difficult par five. And he's like, I just don't want people coming into the clubhouse with an eight or a nine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you know, it's, I just, I, I got a question for you guys. Do you think there is room or is it time to start a new list, if you will, uh, or a new set of rankings? I mean, I, I love Ron Witten golf digest top 100 is kind of the, the Coca-Cola of, of lists. And there's a lot of other ones out there, but I mean, you know, that, that list has hurt me as an industry professional before, because I've had to, answer to and try to justify and waste a lot of time explaining to people that don't really understand how it's put together and who the people are that put it together. Um, you know, not to say that that means it's wrong. I'm just saying it, you know, is there, is there time for a new list? How can we come up with a better list? that's that's, um, different and gives people a, a, a new insight into what's out there. There's no way to take subjective opinions and make them objective in my opinion, when it comes to golf. Yeah. It's all bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There's, there's golf courses on there that I can't believe are on there and others, which I think, you know, warrant consideration. But I, I wonder if the, if the list you're talking about, Curtis, couldn't it be about the most fun golf courses to play? Yeah. Right. Right. Well, Curtis, you yeah. know, you know, just as well as I do. Right. I mean, you were, I mean, at some levels, a, a you had to deal with it, right? I mean, Medina Course 3 was the number 11 golf course on the Golf Digest ratings. It's not 11. I mean, I grew up there. I love the place more than anything. There are 50 better golf courses, in my opinion. Um, yeah, 50 might be strong. but And now it's 53. And so you have this conversation amongst the club as to, you know, what do we do to kind of keep our spot? I'm of the opinion, you know, that – chasing that number is, is a fool's errand, but you know, you have the talk and industry professionals like you and Armin are forced to like answer to these people uh, and come up with answers where, you, you know, so much is based on trends. You know, you look at, you got Coor and Crenshaw now and you got uh, Gil Haynes and Doak and, you know, they're leading this new charge of architecture and there's, you know, I, I like it. It's pleasing to me. But it doesn't mean that everything that, you know, Reese Jones and Tom Fazio and Pete Dye did was wrong. Right. Or was right. bad. It's just different. And tastes change and trends change. And, you know, what's old is new and what's new is old. And, you know, it's, it's a tough one, you know, for the industry, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can remember being at a golf course – uh, and it was a Pete Dye golf course. And I'm not a Pete Dye fan, but I was at this golf course and they had not touched it. And they were getting, they were talking about a master plan. I said, you need to leave this thing just the way it is. This is a snapshot of Pete Dye in the 80s. And it shouldn't be, shouldn't be messed with. 
you, you may not like it, but it, it's a piece of golf architecture history and leave it alone. And I, I think it's so interesting that, you know, we all like different things. Um, you know, I, I had a friend once who, you know, used to say, you know, you like blondes, I like brunettes, you know, this, that, you know, it, it's all different. It's completely subjective, Ryan, like, like you say, but some of these things, we can look at these golf courses and it's a snapshot of time. Uh, I can think of several of these great golf courses that have been in the top hundred that have had major renovations that I, I think, well, your, your course too at Medina, which I just love the renovation there because me too. It, it's just, it was, it was Bendelow on steroids. That's what I called it. It, it, it was, it kept the complete nature of, of, of that, but just enhanced it and made it better. So I, I think respecting the history of some of these great old golf courses. Now, if the thing's broken, you fix it. If it's not good, you fix it. But some of these things, just because they're becoming out of fashion, doesn't mean you need to change them to the latest trend. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, pro- the real problem is, I mean, you talk about all these, everyone has a voice now, right? So you have all of these Twitter golf course aficionados and, you know, golf club atlas, which I posted on before as well, that have all these opinions and then they become, you know, they, they take on a life of their own and then they become the gospel. You know, for instance, they'll go out and again, I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan in the world. Um, I know you guys have done a work with them with a lot of work with them, but like, to me, I, I, I don't love Reese Jones's work, but he's done a lot of good work. And so to go out and discount everything he's done and kind of pump up these other architects because they're, you know, their bunkers might look better or because they have an agenda. So like, for instance, Pete, you mentioned Pete Dye, right? Nobody would dare attack, attack Pete Dye at this point. Well, I played Harbor Town in April. That's the hardest golf course and most punishing golf course I've played in the longest time. There's nowhere to hit the golf ball off the tee. And if Reese Jones designed that golf course, all of these people would say this golf course is unfair. It's too penal in nature. It's penal architecture. And he should be hung from the rafters. But since Pete Dye did it, you know, that's, right. that's an architectural masterpiece. Yeah, And it's all BS. Yeah. Yeah. You, you talk about everybody having a voice. And what's happened is the men's card room got expanded to the world. <laughs> uh, I know, and it's and too many people listen to the drunk in the corner. Yeah. Oh, man. That's awesome. Hey, well, listen, guys, that was a great conversation. I really appreciate your time, and I wish you guys the best of luck on the rest of your 2019, and I certainly hope that we can do it again. I'd love it. Thanks so much, Ryan. It was great getting a visit with you again. You as well, Armin. And by the way, Curtis, is this the first time uh, three Lebanese people have ever been on a golf podcast? <laughs> Wait, I'm Armenian. We're only, we only lived there. Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, we only lived there. <laughs> 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 close enough close enough we're gonna cl- <laughs> all right guys well hey get, thanks, thanks. all right take Great. care right. bye thank you well that was awesome a couple of good friends a couple of really smart guys two completely different sides of the industry coming together for a really great conversation and i sure hope that we can get ryan and armin back on again together or individually or whatever we can do we're going to do it but i can't wait to have them back on again and i hope to continue to bring interesting segments interesting guests to the course reports so that you can hear some different sides of what goes into this awesome game 
that we all love. Hey, so this week, the PGA Tour is at a military tribute at the Greenbrier. The Greenbrier is back, always a fantastic classic venue up there in West Virginia, probably still a little hot and sticky. The European Tour is playing the KLM Open at the International in Amsterdam. So, or as Ryan pointed out, there are a lot of great tournaments ahead on the schedule through the fall on the European Tour. So we'll definitely be featuring those. We do have a couple of guests lined up from some of those venues, so definitely tune in and listen to those. You don't want to miss that because it's just stuff we don't talk about as much over here, and it's definitely interesting. And at Glen Eagles Golf Course, per Scotland, the Solheim Cup, the Centenary Course, the Champions Tour, they're at the Ally Challenge at Warwick Hills and Golf and Country Club in Grand Blanc, Michigan. And hey, a lot of good golf coming up. So keep listening to the course reports. Again, please share this with all your friends. Anybody that loves golf, we're trying to get a big following here. We wanna keep bringing you more podcasts, more videos. So check out our website, check out our videos, tell your friends, tell your family. Uh, anybody that wants just a quick uh, bit of information each week that's relative to what they're gonna be watching on TV, the course reports is where you can get it. Thanks again. We'll talk to you again very soon.